This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, it's New Books in Urban Studies. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm your host, Yadon Lee, a PhD student in anthropology at Tulane University. Urban decay, deindustrialization, and gentrification are phenomena more and more witnessed across the globe. The book we will discuss in today's podcast invites us to think critically about locality and urban neighborhood revival. Based on two cases in Montreal, Canada, this book reveals how local heritage can be an agent of gentrification rather than resources, investigates how places acquire race and class identities, and also this book questions what is preserved and for whom. So I'm very excited to talk with the author of the book, Professor Stephen Hyde. Welcome to New Books in Urban Studies, Professor Hyde. Well, thank you so much, Yidong, for inviting me. I'm glad to have this opportunity to talk about this fantastic book. So this new book, Deindustrializing Montreal, Entangled Histories of Race, Residence, and Class, is published by McGill Queen's University Press in 2022. Professor Stephen Hyde is Professor of History at Concordia University and the Center for Oral History and Digital Storytelling. Professor Hyde is an interdisciplinary oral and public historian with academic interest in working class studies, forced migration, and community-engaged research. Uh, so before we formally started this uh, interview, Professor Hyde, your research is definitely very influential in the fields of deindustrialization and working class history and also oral history. But as our audiences of New Books Network are from very different backgrounds and from mm-hmm. very various uh, discipline, you know, disciplines. I think it would be helpful to let our audience to know more about you before our interview. So, could you please introduce yourself to our audience a little bit, uh, and especially what made you be interested in oral history and deindustrialization? Hmm. Well, it's a great question. Um, I'm originally from Thunder Bay, Ontario, which is right on, on the north shore of Lake Superior, so not too far from Duluth, Minnesota. And it's a resource town, working class town. My father was a railway switchman, so he had the night shift until I was 16. Um, and so I grew up, uh, you know, in this working class context that was deindustrialized. You know, my father was... Um, was um, bridged to retirement at age 51, so his working life ended uh, quite abruptly. Um, and oral history sort of came to me by by chance. I, I was an undergraduate student at the University of Ottawa. I left to go to a university, and I came back home, and I got a job in my, my hometown museum as an oral historian for minimum wage. Like, it was really terrible money, but they gave me a 
uh, an old cassette recorder and a bunch of blank cassettes. And they said, go interview old people. <laughs> and so I spent the whole summer interviewing people and I fell in love with the uh, methodology like, <clears throat> you know, that I, it sort of taught me a lesson that, that history is not just up there, out there somewhere. It's actually in here. It inhabits our, our families and our, and our communities and it's personal, right? And so this is how I, I approach uh, the writing of history. Fascinating. I can see definitely your personal connection with your academic interests. And basically, I think you did really well to present your reader why history is basically from your heart, from your mind, mm. rather than from, you know, something transcendent or something from higher level. So definitely fascinating. So as I mentioned, this is a book with multiple topics and purposes. Um, I can see you talk about identity formation, class struggle, um, urban issues like deindustrialization and gentrification. And also, you also uh, have many chapters reflecting on the revival program in the working class neighborhoods. So for a book with such extensive information as the author, what do you think this book is about? <laughs> That, that's a hard question. It's like saying, you know, summarize your whole study in like uh, 20 seconds. But I, it, it's a book um, about people and place. And it's about two places, uh, Point St. Charles and Little Burgundy, which are two working class neighbors that face each other across the Lachine Canal in, in sort of the, the most industrialized part of, of Canada. Um, uh, it, it industrialized early. And these neighborhoods formed around the factories. And, and one neighborhood, Point St. Charles, is very white. You know, one neighborhood is is really the first multiracial neighborhood in Montreal. And so to me, you know, there's proximity there, but there's also divergence. And so it's an opportunity to, to think about class and race together. I think sometimes um, in the academy, it's like we're forced to choose, right? You know, we're going to study class, we're going to study race. And I think it's so, so important to think about these together. And so uh, racial capitalism is certainly one way that I, I bridge the two, thinking about how urban space is um, is constructed through through capitalism and through racial structures. Um, and so it's a, it, it's a deep sort of analysis of waves of change, right? And how these waves are connected and what this means for people. Oh, I love your description. It's basically, I think in anthropology, we always use the word entanglement. And I think this mm -hmm. book definitely perfectly shows how these different issues entangle with each other to present this deindustrializing Montreal. So um, basically, oral history has a characteristic of being public. So I can see definitely this book is written not only for scholars, but also for broader public. So in your opinion, who are the expected audience of the book? Hmm. I think everyone who writes a book, you know, every academic who writes a book, you know, hopes that it reaches beyond the academy, right? That, um, you know, that we aspire to have a, you know, to make a difference in the world that we live in. And we certainly need <laughs> need to make a difference in, in the world of, of today. Um, and oral history is very much that way. The ethos of oral history as a field is that... Um, you know, we believe that, um, you know, we need we should be working with the communities that we study, you know, not just treating them as objects of study. I know in anthropology, it's it's also uh, in this mode now, too. And 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 so and so uh, the project very much sort of emerged, you know, in conversation uh, with community organizations, uh, with, you know, my students who 
who you know were, were coming out of these neighborhoods um uh my my university concordia university is only about uh, 200 meters from um from uh, little burgundy uh one of those two neighborhoods and so there's there's a proximity there but it's also a distance right it's a little bit up the hill although not way up the hill um and so and so and so there's that distance we still had to bridge right um and so absolutely uh you know the book was intended for a wider audience uh and it's written um for both an academic and a wider audience and i think i know you probably want to ask about the photographs but you know it's, it's heavily illustrated and i think for me these illustrations are important to bridge people not from montreal into the neighborhoods but it's also a way to make the book more accessible to wider audiences um you know for you know this book has really resonated in these two neighborhoods you know in part because you know they see themselves they hear themselves and it helps you know make sense for what you know you know these ways of transformation Definitely, definitely. I really want to uh, have more information of this fascinating pictures and illustrations because basically I think it strengthens the sense of interaction between the book itself, between your text and also your readers, your audiences. Fascinating. We will talk about it later. So mm. uh, the next question will be, what prompted you to do this specific project? Like what brought you to these two specific neighborhoods in Montreal? Why these mm -hmm. two neighborhoods? Yeah. Yeah, well, I've been studying deindustrialization since the mid 1990s. I'm I'm very interested in in sort of structural violence and how people um, uh, understand and respond to uh, you know catastrophic change. And and my first book uh, coming out of my PhD was was focused on the Rust Belt, the making of the Rust Belt in the 1970s and 80s in the, in the Midwest United States. And I was looking at how unions and governments and ordinary people sort of responded to that. Uh, later, I, I wrote books on sort of thinking about deindustrialization or you know, uh, dramatic economic change sort of on the economic periphery. So like in resource areas, um, you know, forestry, mining and so on, which is, you know, tends to be understood a little bit differently. This book is focused on a metropolitan city, and it, and what's interesting is we don't necessarily think of um, deindustrialization in the context of big cities like you know New York or Chicago or uh, or Montreal. You know, perhaps Detroit is the exception, right? Like Detroit is the you know poster child of of the Rust Belt, but generally, you know, deindustrialized cities are 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 often, you know, mid-size or smaller, you know, the Youngstown, Ohio's of the world. And so I, you know, so to me, it was a natural progression combined with the fact that I, you know, I, you know, I moved to Montreal, like, you know, like most academics, it's a lottery in terms of where you, where you land. And uh, so I landed in, in Montreal and, um, and I moved to Point St. Charles. So this is also my way of researching my way into my new home, my adopted home, to make sense of, you know, how I fit into these processes, right? I'm not removed from these processes. I'm, 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 I'm contributing to gentrification, right? And I talk a bit about that book, right? And so I think it's important for, for scholars to, um, to position themselves politically in the work and to reflect on that, um, you know, uh, within the work that we do. Yeah, I think it's really about how to build this connection between your academic interests and your everyday life. So mm. after this why question, we will talk about how question, which mm. I'm very interested in. So 
I'm very interested in how you do this project because it's such a long-term project with a great number of participants and researchers involved. So much of this book is drawn from the oral history interviews of 150 um, residents recorded over a 35 years period. So how do you, you know, how your research focus and purposes changed over the course of this study? I think it must be some changes and what triggered these changes? Yeah. Well, I, my, my part was only 15 years. Like there were archived interviews that were 35 years. Okay. <laughs> I, I didn't start the project 35 right. years ago, but 15 is still substantial. And, and um, um, like some projects are, are sort of linear, right? Like you, you, you jump right in and you, you know, you move forward and it's done within four or five years. Uh, this one, you know, was sort of a winding road. Right. And I didn't set out to, to write a book. Um, so this book is a way is a is a culmination of many projects, right? Both research projects in various ways, like looking at um, you know uh, black youth. There was a project called Map Collab where we were thinking about how young people sort of you know think about uh, their neighborhood. You know, another project was on uh, labor mobility and um, sort of the post-industrial part. Um, you know, other project was focused on Point St. Charles. Uh, so you ha I had many different research projects coming at it with you know in different ways, right? And so it, in a way, it's sort of layered or sedimentation, or my knowledge was sort of certainly sedimented. And then also the the, the teaching side. So I have you know gra graduate students doing work, but also I, I I started to embed my courses, you know, into these two neighborhoods. So for example, there's the uh, Negro Community Center, which is sort of the cultural hub of a little Burgundy community. Um, uh, for for the Anglophone Black community, and and it started in the 1920s, and it went until the 1989, and then it was abandoned, and then the boxes were like salvaged, like 150 boxes, and then they finally were made available, um, and so you know I embed my students in that archive, so the whole term they're going through these boxes, <laughs> and 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 so they're learning from the ground up, right, and and so they they develop projects and. You know, and so I, I do a lot of that kind of work where, where students are actually, you know, working with the, some of the archives that I've, you know, oral history archives that I've, you know, developed, you know, through these research projects, but they're also then contributing and writing their own work and publishing their own work. And so, and so it's, it's like the, well, it's like the Mississippi, right? Like it's slow, <laughs> it's, it's a slow kind of research. And I think, I think, you know, a lot is gained from, from taking your time. Well, it's fascinating. It's such fascinating to see how you actually combine this different project, but you actually turn them into a system. This book is really a great work. And so basically, this book provides us, I think, in a systematic way with a cross-neighborhood comparative history, focusing on two neighborhoods we have mentioned before, uh, Ponson Charles and Little Burgundy. So um, I have two interconnected questions. So first, could you please introduce these two neighborhoods to our audience? And second, why do you choose this specific two neighborhoods to explore? I think you have already answered mm -hmm. this question, but maybe you have more like more specific one, like this cultural heritage or its importance to Montreal. I don't know, but yeah, very looking forward to hearing more about it. Yeah, like I, I, I'm interested in sort of neighborhoods not as like static containers of history, but how neighborhood itself is a is a process and is a product of history. And so the emergence of you know Little Burgundy uh, as a neighborhood is actually quite recent. Like you had 
you know, you had neighbor, you know, you had you had residential areas, and you had on, on one side you had this place called Saint Henri, which is very francophone white. On the other side, you had like the Irish, right? Uh, you know, also white, uh, with very strong neighborhood identities. And in between, you had sort of like this fluid space that, and, you know, with lots of names, right? You know, they call it all kinds of things, you know, parish names and all this. And it's only with urban renewal in the 19, uh, 1960s, right, when much of the neighborhood is actually demolished and rebuilt as, as public housing, but not, 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 not the high-rise stuff. It's actually very much like suburban low-rise, um, that, that this name sort of stuck. It was actually the name for the urban renewal project that then becomes the name of the neighborhood, um, and so, and so, I, you know, I talk about like why this neighborhood's targeted, you know, and I talk about how like the, you know, the uh, the emergence of a black community is very much tied, like 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 you know, many many cities in in the United States, tied to the railway. That this was the one one of the few occupations that would employ black men. So by the you know, 1940s, 90 percent of black men in Montreal are actually working for the railway, and this neighborhood is very close to the two main railway stations. So there's a logic, right, to why why this, you know, why community institutions would emerge there, you know, why you would have like, you know, very much a multiracial neighborhood, like it's only about 15% black um, at its peak before urban renewal. So that, that that's a little burgundy, right? So multiracial, lot, lots of stuff happening. Um, on, on the south side of the Lachine Canal, so Lachine Canal is like, um, it's like the highway to the heart of the continent. So all the ships going to Chicago and Detroit and Buffalo or my hometown of Thunder Bay, Duluth, you know, had to go up the Lachine Canal, right? Uh, you know, it, you know, it's the way in. And and it was it was replaced in 1959 by a bigger canal, right, on the other side of the river. And so it became redundant and abandoned for, for a period, which is part of the story, you know, that I'm telling here, because the, you know, what happens to the canal matters for the neighborhoods adjoining. But on the south side is Point St. Charles. And Point St. Charles is like Irish, right? Working class, very proud, right? You know, connections to Boston. Um, and and uh, on one side of the tracks, you know, there's tracks that split the neighborhood in half. The other half are, it's, it's French Catholic, right? And so you've got all kinds of stuff going on there, right? And there's factories, like all on the canal, it's like wall-to-wall factories. There's factories sort of, you know, joining the neighborhood. And so these are places, like both neighborhoods are places where people walk to work. You know, they shop in these neighborhoods, uh, they live in these neighborhoods. And so over time, over decades, that creates a very strong sense of place, right? Um, that, 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 you know, persists beyond the closures of the 1970s and 80s, right? And so these are these two neighborhoods, like they're fascinating, right? That, and they really are windows into these processes that we see in every city, right? I'm sure, you know, any viewer of this show can, can relate to this because, you know, they, you know, this is happening everywhere. Right? Exactly. I live in New Orleans and I can fully understand what you mean by seeing these fascinating urban neighborhoods and their sense of place is fascinating. And uh, basically, I think you have already tell us about um, how diverse people here, people in this two neighborhood. And I think doing a research in this kind of neighborhood with high cultural and ethnic and um, class diversity 
it must be a collaborative work. And this book is definitely an example of uh, a collaborative work, collaborative oral history. And I think there are multiple participants of, um, you know, to, for, for doing this research. So could you please tell us how people make this collaborative work happen and who has participated in the project and had and been benefiting from it and in what ways? Yeah, these are great, like questions of power, right? Like yeah. this is hugely important. And and um, yeah, and so I, 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 all the projects I talk about, both pedagogical and research are all done in collaboration with community partners, right? So institutional partners in the neighborhood. So those students who are going through those archives, we're doing it, you know, uh, in partnership with um, uh, the Black Church, so the Union United Church, or with the uh, the NCC Negro Community Center Board. And at the end of the term, they presented their research back to the community, right? And it was also a space for elders in the community to share their stories to the younger uh, generation. And so, and so to me, you know, these projects open up spaces for conversation and engagement, also, but also critical reflection, right? Like, neighborhoods are not unitary. There, there's con contestation. There's division. Um, there's change, um, and uh, and who you partner with matters, right? Like you know, you know, because it's like you know, we can talk about community and what that means. Um, but I'm very committed to uh, to that kind of work, and I think oral history is uh, is a natural companion to that approach, right? Because in oral history, you know, you you are learning with, right? It's dialogical. You're going back and forth, and it's you know, a good interview is like two people working really hard to understand one person's life story, and and I think a good project is sort of dialogical too, right? Um, and, uh, and so this project also had other, uh, other outcomes. Like the book wasn't the only outcome, like there's audio walks that, um, uh, that people can do. And we, you know, we linked that in with the local, like the neighborhood, um, libraries, right? So it's not intended, it's not, it's not starting at the subway, right? For people coming into the neighborhood, it's, 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 it's sort of anchored in the neighborhood, you know, so that people, you know, from these two neighborhoods get to actually learn about their own you know, their own histories. Fascinating, fascinating. Do you have a website or do you have a, you know, something uh, like some viral material uh, introducing this project? You can send a link to me and I will put the link, um, you know, just in our introduction of our interview and make more mm. people to know about it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, like storytelling.concordia.ca. It's our oral, oral history center's website. And there's a part for like audio walks, right? I'm, I'm big on audio walks because like audio walks are, um, you know, you hear, and, and they're memory-based, right? So you're hearing people talk, you know, people's stories and so on. And and so you hear what was, you see what is, it's not the same thing, right? And so and so to me, a, a good audio walk is actually not immersive. It's actually, it's actually about friction, right? It's about past and present sort of rubbing up against each other, which raises political questions, right? And and I, you know, I think these two, you know, the two walks that we organize that we have uh, online for these two neighborhoods, I think, uh, contribute to that. Okay, okay, definitely. I will mention it in our interview mm. uh, introduction. Mm. And let's talk about three keywords in this book, I think. So there are three interconnected processes repeatedly appearing in your book. The first one is urban revival. Second one is urban deindustrialization, and the third one is gentrification. So, based on the case from Montreal, 
what are the relationship between these three words? Could you provide us with some concrete examples from book to explain the connection and difference between these three different phenomena? Mm. And I probably I would add a fourth one to that list, uh, suburbanization. And, and because suburbanization is happening a little bit earlier, um, and in Montreal, it's not so much about white flight. It's actually about middle class uh, flight. And um, and so you have uh, you have out migration in, you know, in the 1950s. And you can sort of understand why, because until like 1970, 40 percent of the homes in these two neighborhoods were, were cold flats, which means they didn't have running hot water. And so if you wanted to have like a hot bath, right, you had to go out put it into cans and bring it back or boil it, boil it yourself. There's all kinds of stories about, you know, communal bathwater, right? And who got to go in first was important, right? You can imagine. Um, but, and so people, you know, people, you know, if they could, they would, you know, they would leave. And, and so what happened in, in the factories, these neighborhood factories that I was mentioning before, they unionize in the 1940s, right? They get, you know, the union comes in, you know, wages go up, standards of living goes up, uh, people are, are able to purchase a car, uh, and that gives people options. And so what you start seeing is, you know, the way the neighborhood and the factory sort of diverging, right? And so the these neighborhoods start being left behind by unionized prosperity, not just by deindustrialization, but, you know, you know, their decline begins earlier. Uh, and then and then urban renewal is a reaction to that. And then deindustrialization is happening at the same time, which is sort of like a, the final nail in, in in the coffin kind of thing, where where really it's 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 the poorest of the poor that are left in these two neighborhoods, where like over half are on social assistance, welfare, um, where you have every social problem imaginable, um, and so and so you have like divestment. So the factories, you know, start to close in the seventies. You know, that leads to stores closing, that leads to churches closing, that leads to out-migration. Half the people leave, you know, so the population's going down. Um, you know, uh, schools are closing. Um, and so social divestment follows economic divestment. And so gentrification comes in, you know, starting in the 1990s, but really after 2000, um, where, uh, you know, like the the property values are so low and it, it's a central location right in the city and then you have the metro like the the subway going through so it's you know it's 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 attractive but what makes it really attractive is the canal so the canal is abandoned in 1970 it's like a it's like sewer essentially um and 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 the government sort of has it. They're trying to figure out what are we going to do with this thing? Right? We don't need it anymore. We don't need the ships aren't going through anymore. What are we going to do with this thing? Right. And uh, it's actually sort of like, you know, politics, you know, that decides like Quebec, you've got like a, a an independence movement in the seventies where, you know, Quebec wants to separate, you know, many Quebecers want to separate from, from Canada. And so the federal government decides at this moment, 1977, okay, we got to respond to these people. We're going to plant a big Canadian flag in downtown Montreal by making this canal a park, right? With like biking trails and, and walking trails. And so this post-industrial, this greening of, 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 of the canal actually flips the neighborhoods, makes the make these, these neighborhoods much more attractive uh, to middle-class professionals, right? 
And that and that and that's a big, you know, big turning point. And then you're seeing reinvestment, but further, further displacement. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that, that's like a that's like a sketch of, <laughs> of what's uh, going on. I think is a fascinating explanation and it will be very helpful for students of urban studies and urban <laughs> history, I think. It's fascinating. So, um, but before the urban, um, you know, deindustrialization, before renewal, before gentrification, first of all, we will have an urban culture, we will have a culture, mm. we will have a sense of space. So this is what your first section is about. This first section is titled Industrial Culture. So let's talk about it. So you mentioned in your chapter one, a culture of industrial industrialism was instilled in childhood long before young people went to work in neighborhood factories. And I'm very curious about how do this kind of culture and identity form in early years of childhood, particularly through storytelling, through narrative? Could you give us some examples? Mm. Yeah, no, I, 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 it's my favorite chapter, actually, the industrial childhood chapter. Um, like oral history is really strong on childhood memories. They're very vivid. It's a formative period for people. It's very local, like how people remember. Um, you know, our interviews were life story interviews, but we also did a lot of walking interviews where we're walking the streets and people were talking about, you know, what this was or the story that happened there. Um, and so, and so we have like hundreds and hundreds of these stories and you start seeing patterns, right? Around, you know, a class identity doesn't start when you enter the factory gate, right? Uh, it actually is instilled as you're saying, right? Right in childhood that people start understanding that they're, you know, working class, you know, you know, at a neighborhood level. Right. Um, and, and, and so you have, you know, stories of, of, you know, coming of age, it's very gendered, obviously, too, that, that boy stories, you know, they're, 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 they're more mobile, you know, uh, younger girls have, have, you know, family responsibilities. Um, and so they're talking, and, and, and these families have this, you know, there's a web of connection to these neighborhood factories, right? So you got, you know, it's like extended families. Like, it's not like, you know, nuclear family, one child. We're talking <laughs> big families, right? With like extended, extended. And so you have, you know, almost like a block of like family members kind of thing. And, and they're all like working at different factories. And so, and so the divide between sort of work and and home isn't what it is today. Like it's not like this bifurcated thing that are you know two separate worlds, but it's actually you know woven together. And and so deindustrialization is really tearing that apart, right? Um, now it's different within the black community because uh, you know like Montreal doesn't have like you know, formal segregation like a lot of the United States had, where you had colored only or white only signage. But you had a, a system of like de facto segregation, right? That um uh were certainly prejudice and racism. And and so uh uh a black Montrealer would never know, you know, you know, going into say a store or a tavern hotel for the first time they'd never know if they'd be served or not because in canada you know uh there's property rights so the owners have the right to serve who they choose so, so you know went all the way up to like there's a case in 1936 uh, fred christie you know, he went to like the montreal 
Forum, which is like the shrine for hockey, the Canada hockey, right? Like it's like a, you know, this is like this is like a shrine, right? There's a tavern at the bottom, and he went to have a beer, and he he was refused service, and so he he fought back, and he went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, saying this is wrong, this is racism, and the Supreme Court said no, 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 this is property rights, it's not about race, and so he lost, right? Uh, and this was until the 1960s, right? Like you, you know, and so you had, um, and so that 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 reinforces um, black institutions try, trying to create a, a safe space within, you know, a context of of hate and 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 racism, um, and because uh, you know these factories are not hiring black people, there's a disconnect. Right. And you even see that in the neighborhood. Right. So this 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 multiracial neighborhood of Little Burgundy, you know, white, you know, white people, men on the block would be walking south towards the factories on the Sheen Canal. All the black men would be walking east towards the two the two railway stations. So even the daily rhythm of these neighborhoods is 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 racialized. Right. Um, uh, based on 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 so racial capitalism and what's you know, what's going on there. Fascinating. I think I like narrative and stories because this shows us a very difficult, very complex entanglement of different forces in that today's world. Because when we talk about when we, you know, transfer a story to other people, we actually consciously or subconsciously replicate some existing power structure. So I have I have a question about about the culture of industrialism, basically. When we talk about a culture of industrialism, what do we really talk about? Like in Little Burgundy and in uh, Paul St. Charles, what is the difference or common points of their culture of industrialism? And how do these factory stories shape their you know, local residents' attachment to the neighborhood and also play a role in shaping this culture of industrialism? Well, these are great questions. The um, well, Raymond Williams is very influential in terms of deindustrialization studies. So he's, you know, he, you know, you know, there's two concepts that are, are really foundational. Like one is is structure of feeling, right? Like how you have the sedimentation of uh, experience that creates values and expectations and horizons and sensibilities, right? And and so that you know that that that's very foundational to our understanding of what. You know what's the impact of deindustrialization? It's not just about a paycheck. It's about it's about you know um, worldviews. It's about identity. It's about place. Um, it's you know much you know it's much deeper than just uh, and, and you know obviously the economic loss is huge, right? But it has a cultural and social uh, dimension to it. And so that that concept you know is really what's sort of organizing that first section, right? And thinking about how. You know, a structure of feeling is accumulated over time in a place, right? Uh, and how race then, you know, you know how that differs uh, to some extent. And and the other key concept is moral economy. So E.P. Thompson, Georges Rude, uh, and I think I think you know, moral economy is really around again um, expected behavior of employers and so on. And I think these two concepts are are interlocking. And 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 so. And, and a lot of the British scholarship really, you know, really is foundational, you know, in terms of, you know, in terms of those things. Uh, but power, you know, power structure. So, like, you know, we, our interviews were both in English and French. Like the books in English, but the interviews were in English and French. And it's really fascinating interviewing people in French because, you know, when they're talking about work, these are industrial workers. You know, 
you start saying English words, <laughs> uh, you, know, they, you know, when they talk about the boss, right, you know, suddenly it's an English word, or they start talking about, like, different departments of the factory, that would switch to English. And the reason for that is that before the 1970s, um, uh, capital or employers were very, were Anglo, right, sort of Anglo capital. And so bosses tend to be English, you know, workers were more more likely to be French, so there's lots of poor you know, poor Irish and poor, poor English speaking people. Um, and so, and so, and so in a way that that imprint of that former power structure is actually audible in the interviews. Right. And so I talk about that too. Right. And how, um, you know, or even like within the neighborhoods, like French and English are, you know, are, are you know, there's, there's a shift in the balance of political power in 1970s towards French and Quebec. But before that, you know, the center of gravity was more English, you know, in the factories, but also on the street, right? And so a lot of Francophones would learn um, street English, right? Because, you know, that, you know, you know, that was sort of reality, right? Um, and now it's, you know, entirely different. For sure, for sure. I can I can imagine this kind of, you know, linguistic changes, linguistic transitions happening in Montreal. Because, you know, what people speak and how people speak and, you know, people speak in which condition is tightly connected to the current politics and the current, mm -hmm. you know, society. So basically mm -hmm. narrative is a very flexible and a very useful mm -hmm. lens for us to see all these transitions. So mm -hmm. let's talk about the second section of the book um, is titled Neighborhood Displacement, which means the waves of upheaval caused by deindustrialization, urban revival, and also gentrification. And we have talked a lot about uh, the transitions and the changes happening during the 1960s. And here, I think 1967 is a special year in the history of Little Burgundy. Um, so during the whole 1960s, a period of high modernism, several transformations happened here. And specifically, what happened in 1967 in Montreal, in Little Burgundy? And what changes did this transformation during, you know, the whole period of time bring about in Little Burgundy? Mm. Well, you know, I think, you know, I, I, I came to this, you know, this part of the story with the expectation that Montreal would be like, you know, like other places, right? That you see, um, you know, high modernism displacing, uh, you know, African Americans in in a large scale in U.S. cities, right? That you see uh, also poor people, other poor people, um, and I, I sort of I sort of expected that, you know, because this is a neighborhood that gets demolished, right? And so it's targeted, and so I, I expect, okay, well, they're targeted because it's you know, because it's it's a multiracial neighborhood, even you know, it's only 50% black, but, you know, it's targeted. Um, my research challenged that 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 theory. Um, and I was surprised, right? Um, because, you know, like you have, it's happening in a context of, you know, in Quebec, it's sort of the quiet revolution. So it's like, you know, this idea that, um, uh, the francophone white working class was oppressed by sort of anglophones for for you know and, and they're you know they're identifying with sort of you know black panthers and other you know anti-imperial or anti-colonial movements um and so and so you have starting in seven you know starting in the 60s an effort to uh you know lift up uh white working class francophones and so what i found was was you know like you know 
clear evidence that 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 from the government's point of view, uh, this was a, a white francophone neighborhood, and it was majority white francophone, Little Burgundy, uh, and so it's racism because there's the erasure of the black presence, right? Uh, but in terms of why that neighborhood is targeted, it's actually about sort of uh, Quebec nationalism. Now, that said, you know, the in, there's a disproportionate impact on the black community. You know, black community institutions are dispersed. You know, the community is dispersed. Um, a lot of black businesses that were based in that neighborhood uh, no longer had a place because when they when they rebuilt that neighborhood, uh, it's the highest concentration of public housing in Quebec. Uh, there's very little space for actually businesses, right? It's like a you know a bit of suburbs in the downtown, um, and so those black businesses, you know, had to go elsewhere where where they really struggled, right? And we interviewed some some people who told us that story, um, and so and so and then afterwards, you got a you got a you got a high concentration of. Um, public housing which you know becomes a problem right it, like this is a, a part of a wider story and there's not a lot of places for young people to hang out um and so you start seeing and you have an economic crisis and you have a lot of job loss a lot of you know family breakup um and so this becomes like um uh you know, headline news as sort of like Quebec's, you know, racial ghetto. Um, and, and this is a, you know, whereas before you, you know, the neighborhood was not only culturally diverse, it was economically diverse, right? You had middle-class people also living in this neighborhood. And, and so that uh, clear cutting of the neighborhood had, had a, had a, had a devastating impact, right? And eventually the neighborhood was able to organize and lift itself up and it's now, you know, a much better place. Um, but, uh, but that government intervention was, was devastating. So, I, so the book talks about, about that story. Okay. So it's very related to the governmental uh, intervention into the two neighborhood. And also let's talk about a very, another very important topic in the section two about industrial heritage. So actually in this book, I think you challenge, challenge a, conventional understanding of industrial heritage, because normally we think industrial heritage will be very helpful for urban revival and will be helpful for empowerment of the local neighborhood. But actually, based on your oral history research, you basically provide some different perspective. So my question is, how does industrial heritage function in depoliticizing the industrialization and gentrification, especially in Montreal? And also, how do they play a complex role in these processes? Mm. Well, I think, I think, you know, what I see in Montreal, I see, you know, in many countries, right, around industrial heritage. So there's this, you know, heritage is about recognition, right? So it's recognizing the industrial past. But um, in the context of, of the Lachine Canal, like it's Parks Canada, it's a park, it's, it's, it's supposed to be about industrial heritage, but the history it tells is a history of um, shorn of any, any division, any, any uh, of working class people, essentially, right? So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a it's a history that is very compatible with gentrification, right? So that, you know, what you start seeing in the 1980s uh, 80s um, are former factories being converted into condominiums, right? And so, and so this is you know this is an interesting process itself. And we interviewed people who are moving into these these former factories, 
um, of being drawn to sort of an industrial aesthetic. But of course, these these buildings are not what they were, right? They're transformed, so very much post you know post industrial spaces that are very exclusive, right? That that are you know you know very expensive, and and so you start seeing this band of industry along the canal becoming a band of affluence, right? A very high end condos, and then within that, you've got this industrial heritage recognition that. Uh, is it's more just you know smoothing the change right it's a bit of like symbolic recognition but uh at the same time as you're you're basically appropriating you know that history for you know for economically privileged people uh and so i'm, I'm pretty tough <laughs> on parks canada uh, on this and i i do think i do think it raises wider questions right like who benefits from industrial heritage who's it for in the end and so you can look at you know you can look at industrial heritage sites or 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 uh, uh, adaptive reuse examples right or culture-led uh, gentrification and start thinking about and then you start seeing and you start seeing like developers like wrap themselves in the in the cloak of uh, you know I'm in favor of industrial heritage while they basically convert it for you know, for exclusive use. And so you, you have one site left on the canal that's a, still a ruin, right? It's still like this abandoned building. And it's a, it's right now, there's a big debate around it. Like, and the community is saying, we want this, you know, to be social housing. Like there's no social housing on the canal itself, right? That's only affluent space. We want this space to be for, you know, for ordinary people. And, you know, and they're saying with or without the building, right? The building would be great to keep the building, but it's more important that we are able to remain in the neighborhoods that, you know, we have this multi-generational connection to. Whereas the developers are saying, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll preserve this building, right? But preserving what exactly, you know, and again, for who? So I think this actually reflects that when we talk about industrial heritage, we need to situate it in the context of urban or urban politics of place. We need to, you know, contextualize it in very specific political context to talk about its benefits or it or the difficulties it actually caused to urban revival, to empowerment. And mm -hmm. this is exactly what the third section of the book talk about. It discusses how place-based identities have been mobilized to resist plant closing and gentrification. So in chapter seven, you show us the case of a local activist organization. And this organization hopes to mobilize local residents to resist plant closing. So why do they fail to achieve their goal? And what is the biggest problem with their narrative and other efforts? Mm. Yeah, so that last section that you have that one chapter on Point St. Charles, one on Little Burgundy, and thinking about like um, you know, representational struggles, right? In the context of gentrification and and so in the context of of, of Little Burgundy. Uh, what you have is the branding of the neighborhood as a black neighborhood, right? As, you know, tying it to Oscar Peterson, tying it to Oliver Jones, these, you know, the jazz era, right? And and that's not coincidental, right? In the 1980s, you know, Montreal's pivoting, you know, you know, away from industry and towards being like an events, you know, an event city. And and the Montreal Jazz Festival, the largest jazz festival, I, I think in the world, although... I think maybe New Orleans might have something to say about that. Um, um, 
you know, so 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 in a way, Little Burgundy's branding as jazz, you know, the jazz center uh, is important to the authenticity of Montreal's claim to be a jazz city. And 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 so this, you know, the neighborhood now has like murals. It has, you know, Oscar Pearson murals. It's got Oscar Peterson Park. It's got Oliver Jones building. It's got this and that. Everything's everything's jazz. And so and so and so it's now seen as a, a you know, a black community. Although it's still very much, you know, multiracial, um, but there's no there's no bandwidth in that sort of heritage remembering for uh, other kinds of stories, right? Whether it's about collective struggle, right, uh, the fight against segregation, racism, uh, whether it's uh, the fight against factory closures, you know, all these all these other histories, right, are are absent, right? And and so what you have is a very consensual comfortable narrative in Little Burgundy. And so I talk a bit about that and what that does. In in Point St. Charles, it, it's it, it's it's sort of a different problem, right? And again, I, you know, I, I it's easy for me to to sort of critique, but I and, and so Point St. Charles is known in Quebec as an activist neighborhood. It's it's a neighborhood where you know the first community health center was created. It was the first legal uh, community legal clinic was created. The first uh, social economy, like uh, first co-op housing development, was in this neighborhood. And so it's like a strong activist neighborhood, and it has a very you know as drawn people move there, often middle class people who are activists, progressive people, who you know a lot of anarchists, for example, and. Um, and so this narrative of activism, um, I, 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 I talk about this one mural, it's 80 meters long, and it's an amazing mural. Like, I, I, you know, I walk by it all the time. Um, and it basically is a celebration of, like, a, you know, a, a, a village utopia, right? And, and so in that, in that 80 meters, there's no, there's struggle, but there's, it's, tri it's a triumphant narrative, right? As if, as if they won all those battles, when in fact, you know, Point St. Charles today is, uh, you know, is, uh, is, is heavily gentrified. You know, many, many people are, are having to leave the neighborhood that they grew up in, that their parents grew up in, their grandparents grew up in, because they can no longer afford the rent, or, or perhaps they inherited their house, but they can't pay for the, you know, rising property, you know, property taxes. Um, and so you even see like, you know, so all the, all the stores are, you know, are changing now they're upscale or even the schools, um, they, because this was a marginalized neighborhood 10 years ago, um, you know, school children would get like a, a hot lunch for a dollar a day. Right. And so that, you know, that was a hugely important thing for, 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 for all families, all, everyone was eligible for it, but especially for poor families. And uh, that's gone. Right. Because because now the stats have changed, you know, and so and so it's actually harder now to be poor in the neighborhood than it was before. Uh, and you are displaced, you no longer at the center of, um, you know, of daily life. And and uh, and so and so that chapter is thinking about um, a different kind of silence, I guess, when you have like a, an activist narrative uh, that is about, you know, that's supposed to be about, you know, all the good fights, um, but then it becomes sort of like, you know, it, there, there's an erasure of like, you know, like the limits perhaps, right? Like, like you know, like the failure to, you know, uh, to modify gentrification, but also the factory closures, right? Like there was very little response, political response in this activist neighborhood for all those closures, right? Um, 
And so, and so, and so anyway, so I, I sort of think about that a bit. <laughs> Sorry, I, I went on for that. I went on there a little bit. <laughs> no, no, no. I think it's really meaningful answers and it's really fascinating description of the current issue in, you know, urban activism and also about all this um organizations activities in similar urban neighborhoods so basically i think when you highlight a story when you highlight a narrative or a piece of history some some other things some other very important things mm -hmm. are consciously or unconsciously forgotten actually or erased so basically from the perspective of an oral historian what do you think in your opinion should activists do to transform all these memories or even silences into resources? Yeah, I think I think good research, uh, you know, and good citizenship is is about reflexivity, right? about being you know self aware, about reflecting on 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 you know on your practice, right? And and the limits, you know, maybe the the mistakes, the failures we can learn you know, more from the, from our failures than we can from our victories. And so that kind of honest reflection, I think is, 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 is vital for, for everything, right. For activism, for, for research. Um, and, uh, and sometimes I think there's not enough space in, in sort of uh, movement context for that kind of critical reflection. Uh, because you're, you know, you're, you're, you're applying for grants, you're doing this, you're doing that, this, you're so busy, you haven't, you can't step back necessarily and look. Um, and oral history too, I, you know, oral history is also about creating a space of reflection uh, where um, it's not even just the, the researcher who has questions, like the person you're interviewing also has questions. So, so I think a good interview is like you're, it's, you're both chewing on this and thinking about, you're thinking aloud together and, and trying to grapple, like grapple with the, you know, the full significance of of this history. And I think, I think that is what it's all about, right? Um, that grappling with, uh, you know, with history right up to the present. And I, you know, I'm a historian, but I, I believe fundamentally that we need to think about the relationship between the past and the present. And, uh, you know, and there's a danger if, if you study the past, you know, and not up to the present that you sort of other it right that you remove yeah. it from the present and that can depoliticize right um like it's like parks canada one of my critiques of parks canada is that they stop in 1940 40 40 45 right and and so you know their interpretation doesn't doesn't talk about all these all these waves of uh of uh, upheaval or their own implication in it and so, and so there's this, you know, the safe distance, right? Which then leads to sanitization. You know, there's, there's a clarity in distance, but there's also like a, you know, security for, for a state to do that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I think what you said is definitely based on this concrete and a very specific experience in Montreal, Canada, but also what you said is also have the value beyond the context of Montreal, because you just reminds us of, of the importance of creating intersubjective dialogue between the past and the present, between 
the activists and the local uh, community and between different people. And this is what is very important and valuable, especially for oral history. So it's very mm. fascinating. And mm. finally, I want to talk about the pictures and illustrations in your book. It's really hard not to notice so many fascinating visual materials in the book. We can see hundreds of photographs of the two neighborhoods, and we can also see the pictures of the volunteers, the researchers who conducted the community-engaged projects. So going beyond the book itself, as an oral historian, could, could you let us know why viral material is crucial to oral histories, especially in deindustrialization studies? Mm -hmm. Well, oral history is one of the few, I think, um, fields of like qualitative research, which actually believes in uh, our, our, our default is archiving the interviews, right? Like that, um, um, like I think some disciplines, you, you, you tend not to name your interviewees, and, and, and the danger of that is that you are, you, know, you have, you hold a monopoly of interpretation, right? Only, you, you only, we can only ask you about that. We can't ask them, right? You don't know who they are. Um, whereas in oral history, it's archived. And, um, and and so history has a face and a name and a voice. And, and so these photographs, uh, the photographs, of course, are image worlds. You know, they come with perspective. You know, we have to think about where they come from. Uh, and so, for example, there's like in the chapter on urban renewal, we have these state photographs where, you know, for every property that's expropriated, they have, you know, a guy in a suit holding a number often in front of people, like they're going inside the houses and outside the houses. They have, there's a thousand of these photographs, just a little burgundy of the, of the streets they expropriate. And, uh, and that tells us a lot about state power, right? And it also tells us a bit about social history. You know, you know these places, they're also going into taverns and workplaces or, um, you know, a, a Canadian button, a factory, uh, uh, you know, there's, you know, there's probably a dozen or so photographs of all these people at work and they're all white in this, in this multiracial neighborhood, which taught me again, you know, you know, I think makes visible, you know, the exclusion of, of black Montrealers. Um, so the photographs, you know, so you have photographs that are from the state, you got photographs that are um, sort of from um, some photographs that are from, uh, you know, corporations, you know, that are, you know, presenting themselves to, to wider publics but most of the photographs are actually you know community-based right that they are you know generated by community organizations or, or they're generated by interviewees uh themselves you know family photographs and so on and i think and so i think they, they reinforce you know the um they, they add another dimension to 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 the stories that that you're reading uh, or listening to in the case of the audio walk and so they reinforce I think, you know, this image world or this culture, you know, this culture of industry or industrialism. Uh, and so I'm a big fan of, 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 of you know, uh, photography helping to generate a, you know, a context, right? I get a sense of place, uh, you know, what this place was like, but also how it's changed, right? So there's also a lot of, they're not just historic photographs, there's also photographs I worked with uh, David Lewis, who I worked with in the past. I did another book called Corporate Wasteland, which was on sort of the, um, you know, the, the, the representation of deindustrialization in, you know, Detroit and so on. 
So I worked with him again, and, and he was taking photographs of urban change, right? And I, I, I'm amazed at how, like, a still photograph can actually capture movement, right? Where you see, you know, the urban landscape transforming before you, right? Whether it's, it's uh, condo advertisements, you know, whether it's demolition, whether it's ruination, um, Anyway, so so the photographs are, are a big part of the book, and and you know it's you know the online version is great, but I think the paper something about paper. <laughs> I come from a I come from like a paper mill town, right? So I, I'm 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 biased on 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 paper, but I think there's something tangible when you're going through and the feel of it. Um, I love books, right? I always have, and uh, and so if you do get a chance, yeah, I might. I think you yeah you got the book, right? So I'll you, go on the yeah, book. yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> I, I need to tell our audience if you have opportunity and if you have enough budget, you need to get a physical version. It's fantastic, you know the texture and when you see all these pictures and you see it, you know parallel with all this text, it gives you a just I think a different feeling. And definitely, I'm also a lover of physical books. I think you know the electrical one is useful and is efficient yeah. and it's cheap. But you know the physical one is fantastic. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And the price actually, we were able to keep the price down, so it's about fifty dollars, which is you know expensive. But it's not. Sometimes you get these books now that are one hundred and fifty dollars, which I think you know it's ridiculous, right? Yeah. No reason for that. But I, uh, but yeah, like uh, we 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 really that was another thing that we we did was we we were able to fundraise and get money so that we kept kept the price down. So that way, it's it's a bit more affordable, right, to uh, to people's budgets, because um, yeah, they, you know, you can have a great creative, you know, a great participatory process, and you end up with a book for one hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> you know, it's sort of uh, you know, sort of hypocritical, right? So, um, uh, you know, I, I I I think the press did a did a beautiful job with that book, and uh, yeah, it's a labor. I think every book's a labor of love. Every author, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, but I, 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 you know, I, I published, you know, a number of books, and this is a particular, you know, this is a particularly, it's particularly true in this case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's, I need to state, I need to note to our audience that this book is basically an integral part of your community-engaged research, community-engaged project. So don't miss this chance. It's a fantastic one, and the physical version is just good. It's so great. So yeah, love it. And as we are approaching to the end of the podcast, my last question is, what are you working on now, and what is your plan for your future projects? Mm. Well, I have this big so I, I so so my next sort of dimension of my work is is thinking about um, transnational approaches by scaling up, right? And so we have this big project. Uh, you can go to the website deindustrialization.org, and it's uh, it's sort of inspired by you know the rise of right wing populism. You think of Trump or Brexit or the rise of the Front National in France. Uh, and there's a lot of discussion, there's a lot of assumptions around the connection between, you know, deindustrialization and right-wing populism. Right? Like, you know about the Rust Belt, you know, in, in 2016 in the United States. Um, and so what we're doing is we're, we're doing a, a study of Western Europe and North America with connections to also to China and to Chile um, and India, because it's a global story, to think about uh, deindustrialization and its politics, right? And how, uh, like what's going on in these left behind places. And of course, if 
Point St. Charles and Little Burgundy were left behind, but you did not see right-wing populism emerge in those spaces. And so it's interesting where it emerges and where it doesn't. Like Scotland, for example, uh, it, it's been a very it's been very progressive in areas that have been deindustrialized. And so so we're interested in in that, and we're looking at also like gender and environment and and uh, and also heritage because you know heritage has a politics too. And and so this is a, a big project for uh, until 2027 and many books will come out of it uh, it's a big you know we got dozens and dozens of researchers and trade unions and uh, heritage uh, like uh, museums and so on in germany and france italy us uh, canada um so yeah that, that, that's that, that, that's the next stage <laughs> then i retire i think so <laughs> oh, oh i think it's super interesting and it sounds like a very timely project for today's world and today's you know this moment basically for pop to understand populism and all these important issues so i would love to know more about them and have another interview on them when you have another book maybe before you're in you know your retirement i think it's fascinating <laughs> your work's Oh, fascinating. So, Professor Heitz, thank you so much for coming to our podcast today. Well, thank you so much, Elon. This has been a great conversation, really enjoyable. So, <laughs> Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's totally my pleasure. So, in today's podcast, in today's podcast we discussed a new book by Stephen Hyde, Deindustrializing Montreal, Entangled Histories of Race, Residence, and Class, published by Miguel Queen's University Press in 2022. This book not only offers us two in-depth case studies through making a cross-neighborhood comparative oral history, but also bridges the literature on deindustrialization and on gentrification. If you are interested in urban history, oral history, working class history, or you are more interested in Montreal in particular, this book would perfectly fit your need. Thank you for listening to the Urban Studies channel of New Books Network, and we will see you next time.